Hey listeners, Alex here. Danielle and I wanted to give you a little bit of context for our fantastic conversation with C. Quintana and Victoria Pollock about entertainment unions. There was just not enough time to cover everything we wanted to, but we thought a little history lesson might be in order. Over the last couple of decades, we've seen increasing union activity, including strikes, in the performing arts and entertainment unions. Specifically, in theater, this includes the 2003 Broadway Musician Strike, which included members of the Actors' Equity Association, or AEA, and International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, in solidarity, shutting down most of Broadway. In late 2007, Broadway was also almost entirely shut down for just over 18 days when stagehands in IATSE Local 1 went on strike against the Schubert, Jujamson, and Niederlander producing companies. We've also seen more and more unionization at institutions, such as when the administrative employees at BAM in Brooklyn ratified their first union contract in 2020, and the production employees of Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. joined IATSE just last year increasing the number of regional theater companies with unionized production staffs. And in a recent union victory in the theater world, the American Federation of Musicians Local 802 raised issues with the production team of Here Lies Love wanting to hire zero live musicians for their Broadway run. We're happy to report that they have reached an agreement to hire 12 professional musicians for the show and commenced Broadway performances. We have also seen a large trend towards strike activity for better working conditions in the entertainment industry. And that's what primarily drives our conversation today. In the fall of 2021, IATSE members voted to authorize a strike, which was averted after a new contract was reached. AEA members voted to authorize a strike for touring companies in the spring of 2023, which was also averted with a new contract. This contract included higher per diem payments, better housing conditions on the road, and increased coverage for actor outages. Most recently, the Writers Guild of America initiated a strike this past spring, which we talk about a lot with CQ and Victoria. Additionally, the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, or SAG-AFTRA, voted to authorize a strike on June 4th, 2023. At the time of this recording, These activities are ongoing, and we are optimistic about the outcomes. We hope you enjoy our conversation with this dynamic duo, and check out more information on the WGA strike provided by them at the end of the episode. Additionally, Danielle and I wanted to remind you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash partialviewpod. Starting at $5 a month with our Thank You 5 tier, You can get access to bonus content and get added to our Instagram close friends for our various hot takes. We have additional tiers that include even more bonus content, shout outs for your creative projects, and even the chance to see a show on us and with us here in New York. Hope to see you there. Happy listening. Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Today, we are joined by a couple of entertainment professionals who are here to talk about performing arts unions, and we're also going to get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of the ongoing Writers Guild of America strike. First up, we have Victoria Pollock, who is an actor, writer, and producer. 
She has written for Law & Order SVU and Law & Order OC, coordinated the launch of the inaugural season of the official SVU podcast, The Squad Room, wrote for SVU Radio, and became the first person ever to appear on SVU as both a writer and an actor. She has performed at Carnegie Hall, the Metropolitan Opera, the Barbican in London, and the Royal Lyceum in Edinburgh, and appeared in the indie film Life Inside Out. She founded Calibri Creative, a creative consultancy, in 2017, through which she brings scripted projects and curated events to life. She is a proud alumna of Barnard College, Columbia University, and Juilliard's Drama Division, where she received her MFA in acting. We're also here with C. Quintana, or CQ, who is a queer writer with Cuban and New Orleans roots based on Canarsie and Muncie Lenape land in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. CQ's plays produced across the country include Beast Girl, a stage adaptation of Elizabeth Acevedo's chapbook of poetry with music by Janelle Lawrence, Azul, Scissoring, available via Dramatist Play Service, and we will link to where you can purchase that in the show notes, Enter Your Sleep, and more. This past year, CQ staffed on AMC's upcoming Orphan Black Echoes and their Audible Emerging Playwrights Fund Commission, the 126-year-old artist, is now available on the Audible platform. All of these things we will link to in the show notes. Thank you both so much for being here today, chatting about all things unions with us. We're really excited to get into it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. (laughs) So what is everybody into right now? Uh, we, as our icebreaker question, we kind of just go round robin or about things that we're really enjoying lately, things that are bringing us joy in culture. Sort of two sides of the same coin. I'm going back and watching Succession from the beginning because my fiance has never seen it. So rewatching it is so delicious. But then for the real world twist, I've been reading Unscripted, the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy, which is all about like the real world version of stuff that is very Succession, but about the various suitors and nine plus year olds mega mega billionaire guy and where the money goes not to his kids but to his various lady friends along the way it's insanity but and it's the real life version of it so and like Les Moonves is not even the worst character in there so it's it's like this crazy tell-all so I've been enjoying that sickening but like also fascinating Cool. Confession, I've never I've never actually seen Succession. I haven't either. It's so good, guys. <laughs> I'm always like, I want to watch it. You're I'm not alone. Like, I will. And I feel really bad because I know two wonderful writers. I mean, there's too much there, like, there's wonderful. too much TV. There's, there's too, too much, much media to consume. It's even if your friends are working on something, it's just like you have to just cut yourself some slack and ask them to cut you slack. I also don't like myself for it, but I feel like sometimes I'm that person where if everybody loves something, it makes me like not want to watch it or or read it. Like I, I it's a, I don't like yes. it about myself again, but no, no, no. I definitely have that same thing where I'm like, I have to give it a little bit of time. I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna ride the wave with everyone, but then I'll go back and be like, Shh, oh my yeah, god, that's exactly. Wow. It'll be like three years later. I'll be like, wow, I get it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the same way, and it's. Usually if it's something that piques my interest right away and it's like early enough in the wave and I start watching it, then like, great, I've joined the party. But the more people specifically insist that I watch something, Mm. the less likely I am to do it and the longer (laughs) it will take me. Yeah, no, I totally understand. I totally understand. 
But I love that you're doing both. That's yeah. so cool. I like that you're doing that. I love that. Side. My friend does small seasons with her fiance, which is, I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's a Japanese concept where you center your media around one theme for 15 days. And I feel like you're kind of doing that. Ooh. You're kind of following the same theme. I love that. What about you, CQ? The two things that I just saw, Celine Song is a buddy from me to the Playwright John Fellowship back in the day. And I feel like I'm just consistently awed by her, but her film has been really making waves past lives. She wrote and directed so it. So good. I saw and it. just premiered in New York. Yeah. I just saw it um, in, you know, at the Angelica and it just like, yeah, it just like kind of wrecked me in all the best ways. It's just so, um, yeah, it's just so beautiful on like so many levels you know from the dialogue to the just the way that it's shot i mean i think the collaboration between she and her cinematographer is just so excellent and it's like it feels like it's a funny thing to say but i had like this moment of thinking you know i've been thinking a lot about based on my kind of work on the 126 year old artist which is this idea of you know can you separate the art from the artist and i've been thinking a lot about how obviously you know woody allen for so long had a stake on you know the new york film and obviously you know he's like a horrible human being and um i had this moment of thinking like celine is going to be, you know, take this place as like the New York film. Like it just feels like such a, a New York film in such a beautiful way. Um, so, so yeah, so that really like rocked me in such a, a great way. I've been reading Jonica Osa's debut novel, The History of Burning, which is this gorgeous, uh, very layered sort of legacy of this, of an Indian family that sort of was through the coolie trade, went, you know, to Africa and then eventually to Canada. And it's, it's just her prose is, is a treat, is a treat. So I've been, I feel like I've been bathing in some, in some really great art recently. Oh my God. But to plus one that, like everybody go run, see past lives. It's stunning. I saw it over the weekend. It's like weepy in the best of way, like beautiful, beautiful, human, so human, beautiful story. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I mean, I'm such a fan. I think Celine, I, I was obsessed with Celine's play Endlings. Like I've been Celine's super fan. I, I know Celine since we were both in the MFA program at Columbia and she was the year, like came the year after me. So I was like technically like, you know, the year above her. And I remember just being like rocked by her at that point. And when I saw, when, when I first read Endlings, like I teach it all the time in my classes because it's just such a gorgeous play. So she's just killing it in all the mediums thing that I've been digging lately is um, the new season of the podcast Normal Gossip. And it's listener submitted stories that are completely anonymized, but it's like crazy, like small town, like workplace, neighborhood, like drama and gossip, you know, like shit going down at the neighborhood dog park. And that's very real. Like, the like coffee shop where this person works as a barista and <laughs> it's so much fun. Uh, so shout out to that. They, I think they just released the final episode of the season. I tend to like let mm. two or three stack up before I listen to them all at once. So I'm not a hundred percent sure where they are in the release, but it's good. It's good stuff. That's amazing. How long is each episode? Like an hour max, little under. Wow. Yeah, it's detailed and they still the host will stop and like the host basically has the story and she is telling this story to a guest who is 
has been like carefully selected to align in some way with the topic of the story, sort of unbeknownst to them. And along the way, they'll stop and be and ask the guests like their opinion on what's going on and what they would do in this situation. It's very fun. <laughs> oh, it feels like they like the rehearsal kind of thing. It's reminding me. I don't. I had a friend from college who she grew up in a very small town in Massachusetts and her mom would send her newspaper clippings of like the great cow tipping fiasco or like whatever happened. <laughs> like, but it's like giving me those vibes of like, okay, this is making waves. And yeah. here, here we go. I love those. I, I love, love that it. Small town, those small town, uh, like articles are always so great. Yeah, I saw, I've just listened to a podcast that was talking about sort of, I mean, it wasn't the happiest podcast. It was talking about like the downfall of local media. But the example it gave was that small town newspapers or like local newspapers were in a lot of ways, like social media has taken its place in that the newspapers would literally print like so-and-so went to the grocery store and slipped in the aisle. You know, like it would be like that would be the news being printed in this tiny local paper. But yeah, now that's a that's like a Facebook status. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, well, I just <laughs> I just fell down in Christini's, you know, yeah. <laughs> like breaking news, pun intended. This yeah. is like I mean, that's horrible, but <laughs> yes, yes. Or next door. Oh, next yeah. door is taking the place of that. <laughs> yes. Oh, next door. I'm enjoying a couple things lately. I was, I told Danielle earlier, I was like, for what I'm enjoying, should it be the play I just saw or the John Adams biography I'm reading? Because those are the two genders. <laughs> I saw The Comeuppance by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins as Signature. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I really enjoyed it. And I don't want to give any spoilers mm. or anything because it's running for a little bit while longer. But what I will say is that what I really think I enjoy about his work is that I never know what he's trying to achieve until he achieves it. And it is so satisfying mm. every single time. And he does it. He doesn't do like, in my experience of seeing and reading his work, he doesn't really do it the same way twice. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just like a very powerful, he, he's really doing mm -hmm. incredible work. And I just moved back from the DC Maryland area like six months ago and no one told me that that's where the play was set and so in the first 10 minutes I'm like oh shit I know these people oh that's cool that's really cool because he's from the DC area and so I was just kind of like transported in a way that I think was also a little bit personal to me so anyway I really enjoyed the comeuppance I recommend it. It is long. I think that's like the one criticism that a lot of people are kind of throwing at the play is it's over two hours, no intermission, but it moves and I think it pays off. I'm a fan. Cool. So this is going to come out in time that you can go catch its extension at Signature. So if you're in the New York area, highly cool. recommend. Thank you. <laughs> so it's fitting that our um, things that we were enjoying spanned a bunch of different mediums and forms of media. Seems like a good segue into talking about entertainment unions. So, Victoria, can you describe your experience as a union member in entertainment in various unions? And then also, what inspired you to take on more leadership, particularly during the WGA strike right now? Absolutely. Uh, so I would say I worked for years and years and years and years to get into equity. And the day that I did, I was like, 
oh my God, I've crossed the threshold. I'm like a professional in the business. Um, and joining Equity certainly felt like the most symbolic. I got my master's from Juilliard in acting. And for years before that, I'd been pounding the pavement in New York City. So it it just felt like this is, this is okay, uh, that that was a huge professional moment. I remember where I was standing in Times Square, walking out of the equity building and just being like, holy smokes, like, okay, leveled up. Um, I can go to equity calls and be seen now. Um, and as far as getting into SAG and Writers Guild, you know, I graduated from grad school, auditioned, got opportunities through Law & Order SVU. And joining both of those unions, I think the real difference was feeling like, oh, I can I, I, I could get health insurance through this, especially through writing, because the contract lengths are at least for network. And this is very important for us to discuss as we continue this conversation. But in network spaces where the minimum contract lengths, you know, that you can qualify for health insurance for the next year. And that was totally mind blowing because at that point I had spent years and years and years and years working consistently, working nonstop uh, and still not having, having qualified enough in various different ways to get things like health insurance or pension contributions, all of these things that friends who work the normal nine to five jobs and have 401ks are like, what, what do you mean you don't have those things? So symbolically, that's where, how I feel about being in a union. It just represented a huge amount of access to livelihood aspects. And as far as joining the WGA strike, my, my role has evolved. I started as a normal picketer. CQ and I actually met up on like day two down at Netflix. And we, a whole group of us who sort of had similar energy levels, and we're like, we're going to lift our spirits up because this time is rough. Within a few days, I was given handed a megaphone and then I was chant leading and Just killing that. It. We have all of our SAG after people. <laughs> it's like, they're the ones that, that are leading. So, you know, all those years of voice and speech training paid off and and then I figured I was like okay I need to like make sure I have all my ducks in a row know all the talking points so I officially became a captain so that I could um, direct people to the right places um, being that I had the megaphone because um, lots of people need help whether it's you know knowing what the entertainment community fund is and getting getting emergency funds as an IATSE member or uh, figuring out where the bathrooms are when you're picketing because that's a real problem you'd like Oh, you yeah. got to know where those are. You're out there for hours. <laughs> it's so real. Do you follow got to go on Instagram? Do you know about the got to go? Oh, wow. I'm, I'm writing this down. So many good recommendations. Okay. Does that tell you where there are bathrooms or like open bathrooms? Yes. So it's a little bit roundabout because you have to like fuddle with your Google Maps preferences. But there is an Instagram got to go nyc and it will link to a google map of public bathrooms amazing i love this that's so great i was recently having that conversation with someone about we were like in grand central going to use the restrooms and talking about public restrooms and how there really aren't that many in new york and there was this really great article in the times actually on the subject and talking about how new york is of like major metropolitan cities is is, is has the least uh, bathrooms per capita right mm -hmm. yeah you should definitely be sharing that with like everyone yeah no that's a really good resource it feels like it's time for Thank a you. revival of urine town you know just yes <laughs> right oh there's definitely one but i think there's multiple tiktok accounts of people who like their entire account is them using various public restrooms in new york city and reviewing them mm -hmm. i love that 
Oh, wow. That's, that's a brave, thank you. Thank you very much. You're really taking on the Lord's work. (laughs) Well, but it's like one of them I just got recently was like, she reviewed the bathroom at Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue. Oh Mm -hmm. yeah. Very nice. And was like shockingly terrible toilet paper, but like beautiful fixtures, you know, (laughs) it was very funny. It actually doesn't feel so surprising. That tracks. That tracks. (laughs) (laughs) That tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, CQ, are, you are in the WGA. Yes, I've been in the WGA since um, 2019. I uh, So, you know, I'm a playwright as my background. I mean, I write all sorts of different things, but I've been in New York since 2010. Um, you know, went to grad school at Columbia, been in New York, just, you know, hustling as we do. To be perfectly honest, as much as like sort of I always thought naturally I would make my way into like the te- television film world, just because when I was in grad school, I was always kind of told I would be really good for it. And I kind of thought I would get there but I was like I'm here to be a playwright and to be honest I like never really I really didn't dream of being in a union because I never thought of it as a reality for me I think it's a part of the reason I was excited to be part of this conversation as I've been really actively involved with Winter Miller in discussions about how to get playwrights paid in the rehearsal rooms you know dramatist guild is wonderful in many ways but they are not in they are not a union and they cannot help us in those ways that are, you know, so wonderful that Victoria was talking about in terms of trying to get health insurance and trying to sort of really find a bit of stability in this kind of wild profession that we have. And so for me, you know, when I first staffed on my first television show, and now I've staffed in three different rooms, I had this kind of amazing moment of like, oh my God, like I can get health insurance through this? Like, wow, like it just, sort of opened my mind because, you know, I was working, you know, I worked a day job. I, you know, was just hustling, doing New York, New York health exchange, you know, like a lot of us do. I think it's pretty, a a pretty normal thing for folks who are making it as theater artists who don't have a union to support them. And so for me, you know, WGA to suddenly have this organization that had like great health insurance that had, you know, I was contributing to a pension, you know, and I was really lucky because coming into television as a playwright, I sort of was able to staff in a way that, you know, so many people that are coming up as assistants or script coordinators or, you know, just in all of these various roles, you know, not that I didn't pay my dues, so to speak, in New York in different ways. But I think that for me, it was just like a really, it was a really incredible moment, almost like an unexpected moment, you know, because all the time I was just trying to do the writing, trying to just live as a writer. And I wasn't even thinking about really the the reality, which I should have been thinking of, but I was trying to get benefits, those kinds of benefits from my day job. And, you know, I'd already established a, you know, 401k, et cetera. So to suddenly be like, oh, wow, like this is given to me, you know, was really exciting. And I was approached uh, because even though I staffed in California, because I have residents in New York, I actually joined the WGA East because of my permanent residency. And I wanna say it was during the pandemic, I was approached about leadership for the LGBT salon. And I joined forces with the wonderful Andres Perez Duarte and T Cooper. And it's been really like, really wonderful, like just to connect with folks that are in New York. I mean, I feel like now with the strike, I've been meeting so many more writers that are, you know, based in New York and that are 
writing, you know, for television. And obviously I have like sort of playwright friends because there's so many of us. I mean, that's how we survive, which is why, you know, it's all the more important for us. So this conversation is all the more important for us because, you know, you heard it straight from Tony Kushner's mouth. This is how playwrights are making a living. Like this is how we can afford to keep writing plays. So I think for me, Again, I kind of stumbled into that leadership position, but it's been really gratifying and really special to be able to find that community and to sort of, you know, as somebody who is was coming from theater and just other forms of writing, I always felt like slightly fish out of water entering the sort of television world, especially in the network realm and especially outside of New York, because, you know, being in L.A. in network is much less playwright centric than, you know, there are playwrights, but it's less so than New York, of course. So. I think finding that community and finding those those people here in New York and being able to to connect through the salon has been really, really special. Yeah, that's wonderful. It, I wish that where we get our health insurance was not such a fraught <laughs> question because I know that you both mentioned it, but that is in America, that is a big benefit of being part of a union. Yeah. just want to shout out also, since you specifically mentioned the New York Health Exchange, is that... There's also the Campaign for New York Health, which is the organization pushing the state legislature to pass universal health care for the state. So if anyone wants to get involved with that, we'll also be putting that in the show notes because let's do it. Yeah, no, I'm 100 percent, 100 million percent. Yeah. It also sounds like what you mentioned, Victoria, is that when you joined equity, you could go to equity calls, there's increased opportunities, there's definitely plenty of reasons, I would say to like, in general, to join a union in the entertainment industry. It's a very personal decision, I think, to join a union. Did you have any like questions for yourself or hesitancies or just like quandaries when you were thinking about joining a union? I was just gonna add, like, it sounded like you didn't really for equity. But like, I wonder, as you joined more unions, did that Mm -hmm. did anything come up? Oh, actually, the opposite, where like equity, I had when I was in my like early 20s, you know, hoofing it in New York, it was great to be non equity and be equity eligible and working towards that, because then I could be in whoever's reading and that cool, like site specific, you know, theater when you're just you've got a group of people together making it happen so back then it was sort of it was a it was an ideal balance whereas you know by the time I had graduated with like you know two degrees in professional storytelling and was like I am very qualified for this thing I want to get paid for it um this is not you know this is not a hobby for me this is I've put in my Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. I'm going to continue (laughs) to be a lifelong learner. And I know I've earned the right to say I deserve to get paid for this. So there was really no question or hesitation in terms of joining these other things, especially because they were like, they they paid, you know, I, I think I had, because I've worked for free or for so much less than, you know, what I perhaps could have been in any other profession, given the amount of training and experience I have, by the time you do get those opportunities, or for me, speaking for myself, by the time I got to those opportunities where I could actually get paid for what I had to offer, I was like, absolutely. Yep. I was literally just (laughs) going to say, I think the one thing, and I found it really interesting, and as someone, again, just, I joined WJ East because I'm, my home is in New York, but I first staffed in California was I was fascinated by the fact, and again, this might be changing. I don't believe it has changed, but in 2019, when I joined the union, 
it was more expensive to join in the WGA West than the WGA East. And I remember that being a pleasant surprise. <laughs> and granted, they also do, you know, you can do payment, like you can do payment plan, like there are ways to sort of, you know, but I do think for folks who are, especially people who are multi-hyphenates working in different industries, you know, I've seen people do campaigns to raise money to pay these fees. Like when I found out that I was joining East, I was like thrilled. It was like half, not, maybe not half as much. I can't remember exactly, but it was significantly less. I want to say at least a thousand dollars less. And that amount of money, I mean, is not a joke, no. especially for most of us who are working these jobs that are contracts that are, you know, maybe, you know, 20 weeks if we're lucky. So I think for those of us who, who don't have the kind of the SVU, the, the beauty of an SVU or a longer form, you know, kind of procedural type of situation. But I think that that is a, that is one thing about it that, again, I still absolutely was like, I'm joining, but I do think I could imagine that somebody would have a pause if they were like, I don't know, like, can I do this right now or really weighing that out? And to add to that, I think that part of what's complicated is that if you want to act or write or appear in TV, you have to be in the union. Yeah. There's no yeah. option yeah. to not be in it. This is not like we're working in a right to work state where there is a union, but you can choose to not join it. Uh, so if you want to be in a TV show, doesn't matter whether it's streaming or network or in a movie, like... And even even if it's a, an indie film of a certain budget, you have to be in the union or you have to get a waiver from the union mm. to do that. So there's otherwise you will never be allowed to join the union. So even right now, part of what we're dealing with with the strike where there are it's considered scabbing if you are a pre WGA member who is pitching a show to an executive who's like, well, we can read you right now and look for talent to attach to your project. That person who does that will never be eligible to join the Writers Guild of America. Like that's that's which is a fascinating thing because it does mean that the union is powerful <laughs> or more powerful than other unions. So as we're talking about labor in general, there are varying degrees of strength. And I think the Writers Guild right now, it's a really fascinating and exciting time to be a part of it because you have you you have union solidarity and you have brother sister union support in equal percent, especially SAG. Like we're both up there, 98 percent approval of like, yeah, we're we're in it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to that aspect of this and like the SAG strike authorization vote. But I want to go back to CQ, what you were saying about working with Winter Miller and figuring out ways to get playwrights paid for the rehearsal period, but more like broadly, because playwrights don't have a union, just sort of talking about the non-unionized sectors of the industry that exist and like the challenges there. Because Alex and I are both from an arts administration background. Mm -hmm. And and we're both dramaturgs with master's degrees in dramaturgy. Yay, <laughs> dramaturgs! <laughs> we need you. <laughs> we don't have a union in that, there's no union for that sphere of, of theater either. And the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of America, if you've been to the conference, which Danielle and I both have, every time I've been, there is at least one conversation that devolves into, should we be a union? And how would we go about that? But nothing happens. Right. Yeah. And those are the same areas of the industry that are most notorious for underpaying, overworking, exploitative labor practices. Not to say that that doesn't still occur for people who are in unions. It absolutely does. But just speaking for myself, I worked at major off-Broadway theaters, Tony-winning off-Broadway theaters in 
administrative roles, full-time jobs for multiple years and never made even $40,000 a year in New York City. That is poverty wages. It's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for Lauren Halverson's um, Nothing for the Group. Yes, we stand Lauren Halverson on this podcast. Ditto, ditto, huge stan. (laughs) And we actually, Winter and I approached her and had two of the playwrights that were featured in the Bills, Bills, Bills section, because I think that kind of transparency, I think we need to have these conversations about Mm -hmm. money. I think it's just so vital. And yeah, what they both have done, what she's done with that. Yes. The conversations, I mean, God, we've gone back and forth. We're at this point, we've had, you know, we sort of kind of created this whole statement and then we sort of took a step back and then just been starting to meet with a lot of different organizations. And I can't reveal, but there is one organization, which I'm very excited to say are actually taking steps to provide a living wage for their playwrights during the rehearsal process, which is pretty incredible. Um, yes, well, I, they hopefully, should. I'm hoping a lot of people, you know, follow suit. And I think, and this is something that y'all know, I mean, it's it's not something that is going to be new, but I think the thing that Winter and I come up against a lot in these conversations is there's so many theaters that there's no assumption that the playwright needs to be there or be part of the process. And at the same time, you know, there are a lot of sh- a lot of theaters that are doing a, you know, a world premiere production. But as I was even told by one artistic director, you know, I will choose the show knowing that if nothing is changed in the draft, I'll still be okay with it being produced, which is like crazy to me. But I do think that's the thing that playwrights kind of come up against a lot is this idea of that, like, we're not needed in the room. We just want your script. So we're just going to license your script. So the idea of you coming to the play and being a part of the rehearsal process is just like some cute icing on the cake. When in reality, we're there, as anybody knows, churning out new pages, making tons of changes in the room, especially for first, you know, second productions. So I think part of it is actually just changing that conversation and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, this is what needs to happen. Because also, I think what is a huge thing is playwrights are just hungry. And I think this is a little different, obviously, than the dramaturg conversation. But with playwrights, it's like so often, which is so, it's sad, but it's real, is it's like people are just like, oh, great, you're going to produce my play. I'm thrilled. You know what I mean? It's this scarcity mindset that we have in this this field, Mm -hmm. where people are like, okay, fine. So, you're just going to put me up, you know, for a couple weeks and that's it. And then, you know, give me my fee for the play and like, I'll, I'll take it. You know what I mean? Because that's what it is. And not even being willing to fight, especially we don't have a union. A lot of people don't have agents or managers necessarily. And so then what happens is you are in these conversations and this is what the theater offers you. And there are plenty of players who are just willing to sort of like take it because they're just like, I want to see my play produced, you know, and then suffering because they're in a situation where they're losing a lot of money because they're not at their job or whatever the situation is. So it's just this kind of like horrible cycle that I think is the first part of it is actually just having to be, you know, what makes it really complicated is that also different playwrights at different levels feel different things about it. And so I think it's really just about what we have to do is change the nature of the way these contracts are made for playwrights and for dramaturgs and actually setting up these standards. And something we've talked about is the possibility of hopefully teaming up. I mean, the Dramatist Guild has been really great and sort of we've been in conversation with them. And as much as they know how limited they are in certain ways, you know, perhaps teaming up with them to even schedule, like set up some kind of 
loose, you know, ideas of like, this is a minute, like a minimum, you know, getting an MBA the way that we have, you know, in the WGA. And even if it's something where it's like a theater that is, you know, 150 seats or less, a theater that is, you know, is it on the same level that it's like Lort, you know, et cetera, it's it's on that scale. I think just the, the hardest part of it is it's, we are kind of starting from the ground up, you know, like it's like where it's a bit of the wild west in terms of figuring out how to join forces. And especially like, you know, I've worked administratively in the theater many years ago and I've worked in like fundraising world, but that's another question too, where it's like, okay, do we go the route where we're like trying to get a funder? But then there's the thing where you're like, okay, but if, is it going to be, I used to work at Mellon many years ago where it's like, okay, you have three rounds of grants. And then what happens after the three rounds of grants? Because we all know that all of these theater companies are literally, mm-hmm. you know, struggling to get by. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, just give them three rounds of it. I mean, yes, great. Three rounds of it. But is it going to go the way of the resident, you know, the playwright residencies where it's like a beautiful thing, ephemeral thing, yeah. and then it's gone. Exactly. Like the program that the theater is getting grant funding for, then the grant funding expires and there's nothing to replace it. So goodbye yeah. to that program. Exactly. You know, from my time in working in arts admin as well, like there's always this like low hum Mm -hmm. of a conversation about creating a union and the fact that there isn't one and you know then we see things like bam Mm -hmm. unionizing and to me that raised I mean it was a question I already had when having these conversations about unionizing for years but that really made it tangible which is there's so many different paths to achieving that and do you unionize as a sector the way a lot of the unions that already exist are forms, like it's the direct, it's directors, it's actors, it's ushers, it's box office staff, or so then is it a dramaturg yeah. union, a marketers union, a literary and, and artistic staff union, a casting union, or is it like BAM did by workplace? Mm. And what are the pros and cons of each? I was going to say IATSE seems like an interesting model to look towards since Uh IATSE is a huge umbrella, but they have so many locals within that are specific to different fields. So the difference between set decorators and customers versus electricians and, you know, tons of overlapping issues, but that they came to mind as far as I was like, I I don't know their history well enough to talk about how it came to be. But I do also want to say like right now it's an, it is an interesting moment in America. There's 70, I believe Mm -hmm. 73% approval of unions. So we're at an all time high in terms of public perception of the importance of labor, which I think is so interesting that as the digital and now the AI age has grown and evolved, there's also that much more appreciation for the value of labor. Um, And to your point about assistance and arts admin in general, like my full-time seven-day-a-week summer internship for a summer theater festival, I had a $100 stipend for three months of work. And we had to live there. Like, that doesn't even cover groceries. Yeah. So that was nuts. Um, Yeah. Uh, So that was fun. And... I think similarly, talking about TV, I started as a showrunner's assistant and East Coast assistants, uh, writers assistants, showrunners assistants, and script coordinators are similarly the only non-unionized members Mm. of TV production environments. On the West Coast, they're unionized through IATSE, but 
but and it's also tricky that they're unionized through IATSE. They're unionized as crew members. They're not unionized as writers. aspiring writers, even though their skill sets are directly connected towards development and eventually graduating that's, into like a staffing. Is, it's that's so fascinating. Oh my gosh. I actually didn't realize that the, the East Coast, that's, oh man. No, did years ununionized. And it's crazy because it's like, I think part of what all of these conversations point to is sort of like, okay, the need for a bit of radical transparency about like, what are the numbers? Where is the money going? And TV, a lot of what we're arguing for right now is like, okay, so who is actually watching? If we have hundreds of millions of subscribers on streamers and they're not willing to release, you know, the whole of the information about who's watching what, it's so disempowering. And there's so much data to support, like even in any environment where when there's pay transparency, there's gender parity, there's less, Mm -hmm. there's just, more equity across the board when you just reveal the curtain, even if people aren't getting paid the same amount, but it's clear. It's like, okay, so this is the norm for this particular uh, department. This is a norm somewhere else, but it gives you, it gives you a sense of where bottom is. And I think a huge part of what we're implicitly negotiating with right now is we've all been taught, like, you should just be happy to be here. Yes. You know, this is such an amazing opportunity like you have to pay your dues like and not I, union like, dues yeah no <laughs> right um right. and it's hard it's hard because it's dealing with that psychology like I keep thinking about like lawyers or doctors where it's like okay so they put themselves through law school or medical school and then there's you know they their first law job where they're locked up in a in a room and you know years as residency but like you're getting paid during yeah. those years and and it's like a concrete specific duration of time that you can know before you graduate yes yeah it's such a it's such a bullshit idea that you know that it's like because we're doing something that we quote love that that should mean that we don't get paid or do Mm -hmm. I get frustrated a lot of the times I mean especially like for you I think what you're saying is so real for so many Mm -hmm. you know it's administrators but I think as a playwright it's just and as a writer, like so often where it's like this idea, exactly what, you know, we see it for actors all the time where they're like, okay, we're going to give you the stipend. You should be happy that you have this opportunity. You know, yeah. how many of this, us when we were young coming up and how many opportunities where I saw where they'd be like, we're going to give the actors, you know, at least we'll give them a subway pass, but the writer doesn't get anything because you're just going to be happy right. to have your show going up. You know what I mean? And I think you're being paid an exposure. Yeah. And I think that it's just like this idea of of value and worth. And it's just, it often, I mean, I've thought about this conversation for so many years, even outside of the union, but it really goes back to this idea. And we saw it sort of during the pandemic, especially, but like the way that the arts are just undervalued in this country Mm -hmm. and this idea that art making isn't actual labor, isn't actual work. And the truth Mm -hmm. of the matter is, is we, you know, all you have to do is look at the numbers and see the way that that entertainment, you know, what entertainment brings to the economy and, you know, the broad term entertainment to know that we are actually very valuable to the economy and that what we do is very real labor. And so it's like, I think what makes this conversation so difficult is that it is in this, in, in the intrinsic bones of this country that we don't value the arts in the way that we should. And so it's really about a reconfiguring of this kind of mindset, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we also believe it ourselves. I think that so many of us Absolutely. as artists believe it ourselves and we, we need to change that, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like I could track my own 
journey from, you know, scarcity mindset to where I am now. And I think it's like, I think the arts are valued, but the people responsible for creating it and the work that goes into Mm -hmm. creating it is not because Mm. I think the economic value on like a macro level of the entertainment industry is, is well known, I think. But it's that the profits generated by that industry are hoarded by so few people. Mm -hmm. Right. I think what you're saying is such a good point, which is like, and people aren't putting those dots together of like, okay, yes, we're seeing that this is creating all of this income, you know, but where is it coming from? We don't see those. It's like the unspoken. And who is it going to? (laughs) And like the fact that it's like we value the person or the corporation who I guess like brought this project to fruition in a tangible way, but not the people who did all the intangible things that went into its creation. Right. Which is how we get something like, just because it's in the theater Twitter zeitgeist, Oscar Eustace put out a statement about the Under the Radar Festival getting canceled Hmm. at the public Uh, theater. And the, the comments about the disparity between his salary what others at the public have made. This is where we get into the land of putting artistic directors on a pedestal. And then, you know, they're the, they're kind of the ones, and not, not all artistic directors, okay? But a lot of artistic directors who have had their positions for, you know, 25, 30 years and have come up through what I'm going to, you know, call kind of an old boys yeah. club. He's come a long way since that downtown theater artist on the bicycle, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They kind of are the ones who are perpetuating also the idea like, well, this is how it's always been done. And, you know, this is how you do have to pay your dues. There's this like, and I think we've, I've kind of gotten into this on the podcast before, but like this very like patriarchal old way of coming up in theater administration that I think is still just like so present and we can't we're like that's kind of one of the things that we're primarily fighting against if we say maybe we unionize for better conditions because those better conditions you know there's been there's been inflation up the wazoo there's been a pandemic like unprecedented economic unrest in the past like what 20 years that these game makers are not taking into account for the next generation of theater makers, entertainment workers. I also think it's so important to like be having these conversations and blasting these conversations. And the reason like for WGA, for the AEA, for all of these unions, for all industries, because I do kind of wonder if people knew like the grueling nature and the low pay that I had at my nonprofit box office job would like if they knew how little I made, which was not a living wage, and that my coworkers were on food stamps, would these donors still give to that theater? Yeah. Given the fact that the artistic director was making over $300,000 and letting that happen to her employees, like that's why it's so important to be amplifying these conversations. I think it'd be great if we get into a little bit into the WGA strike specifically mm-hmm. and i thought it was really important to try and break down kind of in like basic terms what y'all are striking about what you're talking about because i feel like a lot of people in the theater industry which is kind of where our podcast is like aimed at for sure 
a lot of people are like, yes, pro-unions, pro-creative people making money. This is great. But it's a little more nuanced than that. There's a lot of things that you're asking for, and there's a lot of topics on the table. I know that when I heard artificial intelligence was like an actual topic of conversation, it blew my mind Mm. Mm because I had no idea. I'm also like a few years behind in technology. A lot of the time I feel. (laughs) Um, Danielle very recently taught me how to record the screen on my iPhone, and I felt like... I, I, I felt that. like I had entered the 21st century. I will say we are we are farther into an episode of Black Mirror than we'd all like to imagine. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. I want to be in the episode with Miley Cyrus. I liked that one. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's scary how much AI is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is one thing that I know you're all looking for protections against the use of artificial intelligence writing a script, obviously taking away a writing job, also increased pay, especially in the wake of inflation. I know there's a couple different points that you're all fighting for uh, in your negotiations, like increased weekly pay, increased pay for streaming shows that have a larger budget. And streaming is obviously huge. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the contract details have probably not been really revised with the with the popularity that streaming has gained in the last yeah oh no no yeah. <laughs> five years decade well to to specify what that increased pay for streaming would be but what we're negotiating mm-hmm. now are for the minimum basics so basic agreement yes. so it's what where's the low bar what are the minimums yeah. that if you're hired in whatever room or to write whatever screenplay, this is the minimum that you would get paid. So when we think about where our union has been in the past, like we haven't really made significant gains in the past 10 years because going back three years, that was May 2020, we were all just trying to survive. Uh, The three years before that, the focus was making pension and health gains. And so that brings us to like the last time we ever addressed anything that might be remotely applicable was nine years ago when streaming was a totally different landscape. And if we hadn't made those gains then, then, you know, we're we're just in a totally different age now. So we're we're playing nine-year catch-up in a lot of ways. One of the things to keep in mind, when you write a novel, the writer keeps the copyright. When you write a play, the playwright keeps the copyright. When you write for TV, um, and I believe for film as well, like the studio, network, production company, some combination of all of them, they own your IP. So they Mm -hmm. own it. For a long time, the exchange was, okay, we'll surrender our our written material, but in exchange, we get residuals. So we get mm-hmm. a small percentage of the profits that are made off of our IP for in perpetuity. And streaming basically said, yeah, no. And they functionally don't do residuals. So you as a writer on a streaming show will get paid one flat fee, like you'll get paid a couple hundred dollars, no matter how many times people watch that. So to put that in comparison, when an episode of uh, SVU that I've written and co-written, so not even a solo credit, an episode that I've co-written airs on ION during a marathon on a Sunday afternoon in the middle of the day, I get a few hundred dollars from that. Someone who writes a streaming show that has tens of millions of viewers within the first four days probably only gets like a hundred bucks. And that's it. 
There is no rerun. There is no one and done. So what we're talking about with the increased pay part, we're, what we're really pitching is a, an attunement of the residual structure in streaming to be commensurate with viewership, which streamers yeah. up to this point have not been willing to reveal who watches and how many and wait, what what episodes, what lengths? So that's hard. Which I know has also been an issue because of um, sudden cancellation of shows. It's like, well, yeah, and they disappear. <laughs> we don't know how many people are actually watching it. So why, you know, what's this cancellation about? And correct me if I'm wrong. Part of the reason I think that I've seen as an explanation for sort of why AI has become so central to this strike aside from its sort of novelty and like creepiness and everyone's perverse fascination is because of recognizing the need to really get ahead of it in the way that negotiations did not get ahead of streaming. I think definitely. I mean, I think also we're experiencing this moment, like my wife works as a professor at NYU. And I mean, all of us have seen it. You don't have to be in academia to see it, but like sort of with chat GPT, and sort of the way that has kind of taken taken America and taken the world by storm and sort of people have really seen in the last few months just like sort of what it's capable of, like what AI is actually capable of. And I think absolutely what you're saying, Danielle, is it's like, we need to get ahead of this. Like, this is real. Like right now we're seeing sort of the bad version of it, but I think we're all very aware, like as we've seen sort of, you know, the way we've seen computer technology, the way we've seen our iPhones get better and better, like this is just inevitably going to get better and it's going to become mm-hmm. more of an issue. I was talking to an actor recently about, actually on the picket line, I was talking to an actor, uh, a SAG after member who's also a WGA member who was telling me about how he worked on a video game and he's pretty sure that they actually just use his face um, uh, in perpetuity. And I think it's such a real scary thing that I, I went on the, one of the early deadline podcasts actually made the, had this conversation and I can't remember exactly who it was. So forgive me, but I was really struck by it because the conversation was you who are on the opposite side of the negotiating table need to be just as aware that as easily as our jobs can be taken, your jobs can be taken. Yes. And I think why Going back to the conversation about this being such a like such a moment of solidarity across the board for unions is because we're all in this place. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like this is like we're all in this. Like we all stand to be not to be like super, you know, apocalyptic about it, but we all stand to be replaced by AI in some sense. I think we're actually terrifyingly behind. I think the reality is the yeah. technology is there. I had, I've been pulling a lot of folks in my circles who are not at all connected with entertainment, people who are like very tech forward of like, tell me what you know about machine learning. Tell me yeah. what you know about yeah. stuff. And there are literally apps that you can like for marketing campaigns, you can say, hey, I want... I want a campaign for this brand in the style of this, and it will within seconds generate a four-part campaign in whatever style you asked it to with four different computer-generated models who look human enough, and that's in a matter of seconds. So I think a lot of what we're bringing into the conversation now, Nick Bilton discussed this in his Vanity Fair article that came out in oh, May. Yeah. It's, it's a phenomenal great. piece, highly recommended. That should be linked below. That's really good. Yeah, that should definitely be a read for sure. <laughs> what he describes is he's like okay there are tens of 
that he, he described uh, <laughs> the writer's strike as the first skirmish in a series in a long war against AI that we're yeah. really talking about we because we're a union have the opportunity to push back and say this this is a technology that is incredibly powerful we want to make sure that it remains a tool that we can use to supplement but this does not usurp humans because the estimates right now the conservative estimates are that tens of millions of white color jobs could disappear like that including the very executives who <laughs> chat gpt even wrote a thing that said ai is best suited to replace executive work as opposed to as opposed to work. storytellers yeah <laughs> chat gpt is on our side <laughs> yeah i saw something that was saying like what is ai actually best suited for it is looking at historical data about what shows and films and stories have turned a profit and have historically done well and then analyzing that against the possibility of a new project and whether or not they should do it which is an executive's job and is mm -hmm. literally the number one thing AI would be good at doing. <laughs> So I think it's the hubris moment right now of that which could be used against us could also be used used against them. So that's, you know, that's Greek. That'll like, <laughs> we'll all find out in 20 years time. Um, <laughs> but what we're fighting for right now is we're saying, okay, AI can't generate literary material. So we're saying humans write human stories. We don't want to be brought into writer's rooms where we're cleaning up a script that was generated by AI. We're saying it's got to start start with the writer. And also one of the asks, which I, I think it was a really clear statement on the Writers Guild, was asking, it's like, we don't want you to develop AI technology based on existing scripts that we've put out into the universe. And this yeah. has a direct tie-in with conversations about inclusion and who our storytellers are, because the vast majority of stories that exist in screenplay and teleplay form are written by straight white male. It's still overwhelmingly so in 2023. All the data shows that. I've been doing a huge deep dive into data sourcing from GLAAD, from Kinsey, from <laughs> from Color of Change, Gina Davis Institute. Like and You don't the even data know that need to know the, see the data to know that it's real exactly it's <laughs> and also how many you know pieces have been influenced by those forces because those are the yeah. executives of those oh, uh, of our work as well so we're also trying to point out the fact that if ai were to use material that already exists it's iterating off of very a very defined slice of the american population and our census reports show that it's like nope we have, in every possible way, this is not reflective of who, what our country is now or what it will continue to evolve to be. So part of what we're having within these conversations as a cultural reckoning is we would essentially push ourselves back because they would be turning a profit off of old stories that are less inclusive and were part of the challenge culturally and perpetuating stereotypes and everything. I know it could go on and on and on, but it's scary how that technology could be our undoing as far as all of these seeming gains we've made in terms of cultural conversations and DEI over the yeah. past I'd and say we've, five years, we've even especially. Seen it in terms of, I'm, I don't know if you guys have seen like, even just that there was like an article that was like showing kind of what AI's interpretation of like various academic heads. And it was like, it created these like approximations of like, this is what a professor of philosophy looks like. This is what a professor, and it was really gross. Uh. <laughs> 
and interesting though you know what i mean but it goes back to this conversation you know what i mean which is like this really it could be this really scary step backward into the plagiarism machine you know yeah wow so not to go totally 1984 on you guys but that's why we're (laughs) that's why we're bringing it up now for sure Exactly. And what, let's go through the final few points on mm-hmm. what the WGA is striking for. 2024 should not be 1984. That should be our, our slogan. Yes. <laughs> Thank yes. you. AI didn't come up with that one. No, no a writer I did. did. A human writer. <laughs> Great. So then next is about changing the definition of what a fully staffed writer's room looks like and what that is. Um, Yeah, to protect the minimum employment opportunities, as well as creating exclusivity deals. I think what you're trying to get into there is this idea. So a big thing that actually happened, especially during the pandemic, is sort of these what are called mini rooms, right? You guys have heard this idea Mm -hmm. of mini rooms. So it's like sort of before a show is greenlit. It'll just be like usually a handful of writers, mostly upper level writers that are sort of brought into the session of like, let's either just break the season or possibly write, you know, a smattering of episodes or, you know, a combination of the two. And when the, with those scenarios, the people that are cut out of those situations are the staff writers, the lower level writers who, you know, sort of need those opportunities because traditionally, you know, television has worked as an apprentice model. You know, you learn it by being in the room, by doing it. And that's just sort of the way it operates. So when you have these mini rooms, which are just, you know, three upper level writers who are all, you know, sort of EP or, or showrunner level people, you are limiting the opportunities for people who are coming into the business. And to Victoria's point, at this point in time, it's mostly the lower level writers that are the people of color that are the folks that are on the margins in whatever capacity. And so that's obviously even more of an issue. So the dream, the hope is that by kind of increasing the sort of requiring a certain number of writers in the room would allow for, you know, this idea of, you know, that kind of traditional apprentice model to continue so that lower level writers can learn the game and sort of be in the room for the process, like obviously then move on up and become the upper level writers. And in addition to that, there's the issue that with these shorter seasons, there are also, you know, these budgetary constraints and people are saying, oh, we'll just put the showrunner and the EP to go to set. And we're not going to actually have any of the other writers go the set so then you're further limiting the you know if there does happen to be one lower level or mid-level writer sort of they might not have the opportunity to even get to set which is how are you going to end up producing a television show because as you know we know writers are producers in television and so how are you going to learn how to produce a television show if you've never been on set to be able to do it i mean i was literally just in a group of writers there are four of us who probably all started working in tv around the same time and I was one of the lower level, I'm a mid-level writer, I was one of the lower level in the group, and I was only one of two writers, only 50% of us had been to set before. And that same same ratio and other conversations I'd had, and I would say the main reason why I had been on set was because I was on a network show where 
you're writing and producing as you go. So you mm-hmm. have to, it's sort of like, it's out of necessity in a way that it's been divorced in the mini room model. And everything CQ said, one of the other challenges with mini rooms, they're defined as rooms that are less than 20 weeks yes. long, which means usually those mm-hmm. groups of writers are creating an entire, it's sometimes an entire season of a show in less than 20 weeks, some that are as short as three weeks. Yeah. So they're doing work that should be paid at a premium and most of those the majority of those writers increasingly so are paid at the minimum so they're only paid the minimum amount or they're they start at a staff or level and then wind up having to repeat it because the budgets haven't gone up so it creates this myriad of income and evolution challenges as far as career career growth, um, basic learning opportunities. Um, and to also like put the, the weeks into perspective, like if you're in a mini room, that's only three weeks long, you don't qualify for health insurance. You have not worked Mm -hmm. long enough to qualify. You can get health insurance through the guild, but you have to make a minimum of about for the East, it's currently about $42,000 in order to qualify. Mm -hmm. So that translates to if you're a TV writer, a set number of weeks, or if you're a screenwriter, it means you have to get, you have to hope that the first chunk of your pay for your one-step deal is big enough to help you qualify for that. And I think that's a really important thing for people to, to, to just like sort of have in the conversation is the fact, because I think if people just outright see what a weekly minimum in the WGA looks like, they might think, wow, well, that seems really, really great. But it's like, okay, great. But what if this person has just a one, exactly like one three-week gig, maybe another, you know, possibly another like, you know, 10-week gig, and depending on what level they are. And now, you know, sort of there's part of the fight, which I think we will win, which is the idea of staff writers actually getting Mm -hmm. paid for an episode. But so often you have staff writers who are writing episodes, they're not getting compensated for it. A lot of writers of color, especially that are having to repeat levels over and over again. A friend of mine was a staff writer four times before moving to the next level. So it's really, I think, important to sort of realize that a conversation that sort of has come up with this really struck me as a playwright is that like, I've always thought of television writing as a gig, as a great gig, but as a gig, because that's how it always has been for me. I've staffed three times, I've worked freelance and done some development, but it just seems like a gig. And so when I hear people talk about a sort of idea of it being this kind of like middle-class job, I'm like, I. It has never, in my experience in being in television, felt like a regular, steady thing. And I think for all of us who obviously work in the arts from, you know, the conversation we've had, the dream is that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting that you um, brought up the idea that, like, if you just saw the sort of weekly minimum out of context, you'd say, oh, that looks great. Because I feel like the same conversation actually recently happened in theater, particularly Mm -hmm. about Equity Broadway minimums yes and was like that's so much money a week and it's like yeah, okay but well, you gotta make that last. you gotta make that stress you gotta yeah. make it right it's yeah. like okay so like what if your show closes right after opening like six weeks <laughs> yeah and also your agent gets a cut agent your manager fees. gets yeah. a you have to give 50, minimum 10 to 25% of that away because the thing is when you're you you can't just sign a contract for right. TV. You have to either even if they're freelance, you have to hire a lawyer or a manager yep. or an yep. agent to execute that deal. And so the taxes. again, yeah, 
pre-tax. That's like 50% of your income automatically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think so similar to how we were saying, it's like, well, you really don't have a choice going into a union. It's similarly, you really don't have a choice that you need a team to help you not only get the job in many cases, but literally help you sign on the dotted line mm-hmm. and make sure that there's some degree of protection for you, hopefully, if there's mm-hmm. any wiggle room in the contracts. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. what I was trying to say, what I also wanted to bring up is that all of our asks combined for these, you know, mega multi-billion and trillion dollar companies, all of our asks combined would cost less than 2% of their revenue. So as we're talking about the proportion of what are we asking for in relation to what's out there, it's Mm -hmm. insane. And they've actually lost that amount as of what week was that, Victoria? Was it like week four or something? Because they're losing like $30 million a day. Yeah. We've shut down production, like LA is functionally shut down, which is a very like challenging issue because it means that IATSE members and Teamsters and SAG actors are also out of work. So it's like very complicated industry wide, but the cost to LA's economy, we had surpassed what our asks would have been for all of 2022 through 2023 on week three or something. Yeah, it was really, it was like, yeah, it was like a month in or less than a month in. Um, It's crazy. And also, I mean, just to your point, I think it's a, it's worth mentioning that and I have thought about this a lot because strikers in New York, you know, New Jersey are eligible for unemployment, but our, you know, our comrades in Los Angeles are not. And so when you think about the sacrifice that so many fellow union members are making being on the line with us and refusing to sort of, you know, break the line, it's, I I think about that a lot because it's, Mm -hmm. it's really, not that it's not a sacrifice here because it is, but over there, it really is. Is that just a difference in like state unemployment laws? Yeah, state unemployment laws, which I, I did not realize. I was actually, when I, I was, I was shocked. Weren't you? Like, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, it makes you, and similarly, like I didn't, I I, I feel like I've learned more about state, state regulations in so many different ways. Like I didn't know, there's a woman who came to picket with us, uh, flew up, flew in from North Carolina. I was asking her how things were back home. And she's like, well, it's interesting. North Carolina's a right to work state. So our teachers aren't even unionized. So because it's a right to work. Yeah. So they have unions. They just don't have the same power. Like we're because we're, you know, Writers Guild East, Writers Guild West. Fundamentally, they started with California and New York. Like there's like (laughs) union power exists in those states. So it's fascinating to think about this at a national level, like any labor union fight. It's like, okay, for raising the raising the tides for us. We want it to raise for everyone. Um, we had the leaders of the AFL-CIO come speak t- with the Writers Guild on at Monday's picket at Amazon. And that was really amazing to hear them say, it's like what you're striking for right now is for all unions. Like yeah. it doesn't matter whether you're a construction worker or yeah. a teacher or a nurse or, or an equity actor that fundamentally we're talking about the relationship between labor and profit and that our labor contributes to these profits and we deserve more than crumbs. And, mm-hmm. and so many people have said, you know, like when I talk on the lines with folks or even, you know, the folks that I was in the room, I was in the room with a lot of uh, several upper levels on the last show I was working on that just closed down with the strike, obviously. And so many people have just said, like, the the solidarity that we're seeing right now in this strike is unprecedented. 
that, and I do think it's so much of it is around that AI conversation, but it is humbling and beautiful to see like exactly what you're saying, Victoria, that so many folks of different stripes are, that are just really, you know, coming together for this cause. Something that there's, there's a point we sort of jumped past earlier that I'm still mulling over now in the context of this and like the idea of union solidarity and, and the, you know, broader implications of this strike is, you know, there's um, for the ununionized sectors of the entertainment industry, I know that there are talks specifically because we did an episode on intimacy direction oh, cool. a couple months ago um, with my Columbia classmate Cha Ramos. And she, yeah, so she, she mentioned that there are conversations with SAG-AFTRA about them opening union membership to intimacy coordinators and intimacy directors. And, you know, I'm just thinking that that just got me thinking about the opportunities that may exist for union membership to open up or broaden Mm -hmm. to more types of workers. Is there a maybe there's a reason that playwrights it wouldn't make sense for playwrights to join the WGA, but I don't know what they are, if those reasons exist or where. Or like script coordinators. You know, like. It is a really, it is a really interesting thing because there's been such a, I completely hear what you're saying in terms of script coordinators too, but because of the WGA, you know, what makes, uh, I, this might not be clear or I don't know, it might be, but what makes the WGA East, you know, separate from the WGA West is the fact that we include journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And so it is a really interesting thought, especially now there's been a big movement to sort of push with, with podcasts, you know, sort of taking a big, having a big moment, especially like coming through the pandemic um, to kind of bring sort of minimums to podcasting as well, scripted podcasting. So I do wonder if perhaps there is a world where, you know, there could be, you know, a sector of of the WGA that, you know, it's not something that I, I actually know. And I, and I want, it's probably something that would need to be sort of post strike, <laughs> you know, conversation, but, but I think it's a great, it's a great thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also have digital new media. So, you know, the writers of Vulture and uh, Huffington Post, yep. those writers are unionized through us. And that was a, and uh, folks at MSNBC. So we've had some newer additions to our guild, which is uh in the past four years, there's been some transition of leadership model to acknowledge that there are really three lanes of there's you know broadcast journalism, there's television and film, and then there's digital new media writers as our current three lanes. So it's oh, I think it's fascinating to see where the areas of overlap are, and then of course where mm-hmm. there are always industry specific quirks and challenges. Yeah, yes. yeah, but it, it is it's such a good point. Yeah, it's still, unfortunately, with writers, there's still, like, people are able to negotiate. Like, there has been, like, some negotiation in terms of, like, WGA members, uh, like, sort of getting benefits as a, uh, as W, you know, as it for a podcast. But it's still, it's very, it's still very new. And there's not really, and I think especially, unfortunately, this, because the kind of 
not to say that it's died, but it's sort of paused a bit. I think the kind of boom that was happening with podcasts has slowed. And so I do think though that's a great thought. Like if there was a world where there, you know, especially considering how many playwrights are already in the union, you know, it feels like it would it would be like a natural thought. Yeah, totally. And dramaturgs too. Let's get y'all in there. Right. I was like, what's the you know, so many workplaces <laughs> or companies or the, the workers unionize and the process is not that they're creating their own new union, they're joining an existing union. Yeah. Right. So and, and like actors equity is equity and stage managers. Stage managers. I was like gonna I say, say yeah, exactly. yeah. And like fight choreographers and stuff. So there's yeah. that piece, which going back to your intimacy coordinator and talking about them unionizing, I think there's the perception that because they're similar to fight choreographers or fight coordinators mm-hmm. that there's existing like okay, similar but different. SDC, SDC. would be the yeah. the natural assumption. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I would have thought if if fight choreographers were part of AEA that they would that then therefore intimacy directors would be too because a lot of well it's changed a bunch but I feel like historically like now I mean intimacy coordination is obviously like you know newer in terms of our industry in some ways but I do think traditionally there's been a lot of like fight choreographers who also are intimacy coordinators like you know like Dave Huntsville. Cha is so highly recommend to all listeners if you have not listened to our episode with Cha Ramos go do that. We go deep into this. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we've really like gotten into so much of what we wanted to talk about. And there's like, there's so much more. Like, that's the thing is like, there's so much more. Maybe we'll do a follow up once the strike is over. That would be fun. Oh, oh, God willing. God willing. God willing. Yeah, we'll get the strike over. We'll get dramaturgs and playwrights into the mix. Yes, please. And then we'll have a follow-up about the utopia we've created uh, because we've solved all the problems tonight. The utopia. (laughs) One question I have is if you would like to share, both of you, what would you say is like the greatest gift being a union member has given you in your time? I would say personally, and I think it's really probably just a bit of a repetition of what I have said, but I think... I think it's been a reminder of my value as a writer. I think that it is, especially from what we're talking about, like coming from a theater background and and just sort of being paid what you're worth, that it really does mean something, you know? And I do think it's it's really, really valuable. And and I think that has been that sort of reminder of my value in addition to sort of obviously the natural community that comes from being a union member. I think those two things would be the the biggest gifts. Oh my God, I couldn't have said it better. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's uh, reminding yourself that you are part of a professional community and that there's a bar set for you a hundred percent. And, you know, having health insurance when you qualify for it is pretty great. Uh, Amen. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huge. It's the little things, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. Just that <laughs> it's the, You know, it's the, uh, it's the staying alive for me. That's, uh, yeah. You know. pretty good <laughs> we should do a cover of Stephen Sondheim's being alive but staying alive <laughs> staying alive is in fact also a song staying alive, staying alive. <laughs> oh we should do a mashup we should do a mashup staying alive and being alive okay we'll work on that that's what we're doing during the utopia, utopia. reunion utopia episode <laughs> So before we wrap up, what are some of the ways that we and our listeners can support the strike right now? Like, where is there a place we can find out where people are picketing and how we can support 
the picket line? Yeah, I mean, the WJ East and West both are like actively publicizing on their websites, on Instagram, all over. Every single day, you can see a list of where the picket locations are to be there. I think right now, something that in conversations that I'm having, especially outside of New York, I was outside of New York just this past week, is I think all the help that we can get of continuing to amplify this cause. You know, I think that it can't get lost. I think we're, you know, we're seven weeks (laughs) But it is still such an important thing and we're still fighting just as hard as we were in the beginning. And I think we can't lose our voices. Like we really need people outside of the union to be talking about this and to keeping it a part of the conversation. I think it's easy for us who are inside of it Mm -hmm. to feel like it's really amplified. And then when I've stepped outside of it to realize like, oh, people aren't talking about it in the same way as I thought they were. I was going to say they will when stuff is their content's not getting created and their shows aren't coming back but exactly like come september when abbott elementary doesn't come back it's going to be exactly exactly then it'll be a conversation but we obviously do not want it to go on for that long yeah that's so great to know that you can just look online and see where people are picketing though because i had no idea and that's been one of my questions is like if i want to go and like pass out granola bars i don't know is that helpful i I have no idea yes it is yes Yes. it is you can go (laughs) to so it's wgastrike.org and uh-huh. on socials it's at wga east uh, and wga west and they also have information about pickets for instance that happen in atlanta or philadelphia or boston you know new york and la are hubs but we you know people film projects all over the country so it, there there may very well be a picket coming towards you and as far as getting <laughs> information um there's a member driven account that i've been collaborating on with some other members called wga strike unite we're on all social platforms and we're trying to just get the message out about how members stories translate to our asks and vice versa so you know what we're talking about with a mini room who's going to know what a mini room is when we break it down that this is a short-term contract that kind of inhibits career growth and can make it really hard for you to get health insurance, even though you did the same amount of work you would have normally done in other spaces, people kind of go, okay, so you did work at a premium and aren't getting paid a premium. You're just getting paid less to do the exact same amount of work. That's messed up. So anyways, we're getting information out there. So just if you're curious about what is it that we're asking for and and just want some colorful graphics and videos to share, <laughs> check Yeah, out. for sure. I definitely just want to say that like you are, you know, even if you can come in, like, you know, I had a friend who came in from DC and just joined us on the picket line. You know, my wife is a professor and a bunch of the folks who are fighting for union rights at NYU came and joined us on the picket line. Like, it doesn't matter what your background or your job or anything, like you are valuable, like being out there with us and shouting with us loudly, like, you know, we need your help and we need your voices. So like, you know, even if you can come by for like an hour, you know, just like, just stop by and it will be helpful. I promise. And we will love you forever. We will love you forever. (laughs) You'll meet some cool folks. We're pretty cool. (laughs) I've been wanting to like contribute, like just like with my voice or again with granola bars or something. And I just had no idea. So now I know. I'm, Truly, I'm so yeah. water exactly. bottles, water bottles. I know they're not eco-friendly, but oh my God, when you're shouting for three hours straight and somebody hands you a bottle of water, it is like, oh my God, you've been, <laughs> you've been so walking great. through the desert and there's the oasis. And it's, it's been kind of beautiful just the way people like have brought snacks and like I've seen people like that are more quote like official like coming in and then I've seen people on the side just like waiting during these big rallies and they're like have, you know, 
a sandwich. Of, you know, yeah, yeah, like sandwiches or, you know, even packs of chips or like water bottles or anything. Like it's, you know, it's people will be, especially if you're out there for a lot of hours, you know, I will say, you know, for the folks too that are going, if you're an early riser, there's a lot of these pickets that happen really early. Mm-hmm. And if you, oh my God, if you showed up with like coffee for these folks, oh, yeah. people will love oh you forever. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I'll pick up some Duncan and Munchkins and, and meet you there. Oh my God. Yes. You'll be, everybody will be, we'll love you. We'll love you. Awesome. If you want people to follow you on the socials, if you have anything that's coming up that you can t- chat about in theater, in film, TV, whatever, you know, where, where can we find you? How can we admire your brilliant work? You can follow me at Veep Speaks, V-E-E-P Speaks on Twitter and Instagram. And I hope to have some stuff coming your way after this strike is over <laughs> that's the dream <laughs> i love that yeah no real i uh see you can follow me at c quintana town that's c q u i n t a n a town and my s corpus is quintana town i did it after shonda land <laughs> nice um anyway yes. The big thing that I shout out at the beginning of the show is my Audible original piece, which is my Emerging Playwrights Commission, just literally was dropped on the platform um, this past week. It's called The Six-Year-Old Artist. And I really am proud of it. We had an amazing team. And it's like a really beautiful, beautiful thing. A funny time to to announce it amidst all the, the striking of it all. But it's, yeah, so that's sort of the big, the big thing right now. And I'm working on a project with Carthage, with Carthage College called the Genderless Play Experiment. That's going to be cool. in. Wow. Yes, I'm very excited about <gasps> it. When does that when does that start? So we've I've been working on it with them now for about a year and it they're gonna have they'll have a workshop, they'll have a production of it in the fall at the college in Wisconsin. And Yay. I hope the play has a beautiful, mighty life outside of there. So keep an eye out for the genderless play experiment. It's basically like um it's kind of just this big exploration of queer love, sort of like six characters in search of an author. It's written on the body in a way. It's the idea is I kind of was obsessed with uh, how can we, in written, I don't know if you've ever read Jeanette Winterson's when it, Written on the Body, but in that book, you never know the narrator's gender. And so I sort of became obsessed with how you could actually explore that on stage when you're dealing with bodies. So cool. the wonderful Lucky Stiff will be directing it. And, uh, and yeah, so... So those are those are probably the things right now. Congrats. That's awesome. That sounds so cool. Do you have a new play exchange page? I, I do. I'm really bad at it. I like just I kind of like updated it like maybe a couple months ago, but like I'm not good at it, but I should be. I do have one. I do have one. I'm happy. The funny thing is, is like I'm happy if somebody like reaches out to me and wants to see a script, I'll send it to them. But for some reason, there's something about I'm not quite on Chuck Me's level to be like, it's all there. You're both such kick-ass humans, and it was awesome to talk <laughs> with both so of great. you. So good. I don't know, Danielle, did we solve performing arts unions and entertainment unions? I think as we established earlier, um, there's maybe a little like to be continued on this. There's some work to be done. There's some work to be done, but we're working on solving it. We're close to solving it, and we will have a follow-up episode when it is solved. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, (laughs) hopefully you all tune in for that and catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, 
Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at PartialViewPod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye.